and I for the Kenai. Coburn and I are back here today at the Serenity Intake Office recording our second, uh, I guess I'll call them parental experience stories because, yeah, I suppose that's what they are. We're here with Terry today. How's it going, Terry? Good. Good. Yeah, well, let's get right into it. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, Terry. Where are you from? So I actually um, am from Alaska. I grew up in Fairbanks and then moved to the Kenai in 82. And so this is home and where we raised our kids. And um, one of them still lives in the other. The other is living up uh, in the area. And the other is living up in Wasilla. Nice. Cool. Hmm. What, uh, what spurred your move? Um, well, I had gone outside to college in mm -hmm. Georgia. And when you grow up in Alaska and you go out to the south, it's very different. Mm -hmm. And so um, I was married, I got pregnant, and we decided that we did not want the lifestyle of dropping the kids off at the daycare and both of us working. Mm -hmm. And so we came back to Alaska and uh, were able to have uh, live on, have a good job and live on one income so that I could stay home with my kids, which was the priority. Right. All along. Mm -hmm. so, you said you have two kids? I have two boys. Two boys? Yeah. Fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, yeah, very blessed. Yeah. Yeah. So how old are your kids now? So one is 33 and the other is 36. Nice. Yeah. So when you move back, the kids are starting to grow up, things like that. Um, you're, you stay home to raise the kids? Mm-hmm. Right. I stayed home until my youngest went to kindergarten, and then I went to work at the school that they were going to. Oh, cool. Yeah. So what did you do at the school? Um, I was the um, assistant in the office and um, helped run sports programs and did the bookkeeping and just whatever that they needed. They went to a Christian school. Oh, cool. Yeah. And so... Um, that was uh, that was a priority too. You know, we went and looked at the public schools. They were beautiful. They had all the latest and greatest. And looked at the Christian school, and you know, it, they, they live off a very small budget, mm -hmm. but um, just felt like that was where they needed to be, where they needed to go. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much what I did growing up too. My mom homeschooled uh, me and my sister. Up, I think I, I think she. Um, I know I went up to sophomore year, and then that's when I started high school at Cookinland Academy, mm -hmm. uh, a small Christian school. And that was basically their idea, mm -hmm. too, was that they they wanted me to be in the right environment, and that was kind of worth it. And, you know, uh, homeschool wasn't working out. Once I hit, like, 13, started getting really moody. So, you know, yeah. stuff like that. <laughs> that's a tough age. And mm -hmm. that is where both the kids went to Cookinland mm -hmm. um, from one of them went from preschool on, the other went um, from kindergarten on. Uh, they both wanted to try, the public school had such a mystery to it, so they both wanted to try that one right. year, one year, and they wanted to come back to Cook Inlet, so. Yeah, really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I remember that being kind of an allure of, like, uh, the mysterious public school. What yeah. happens when you're graduating classes, more than eight people? Hmm, what a strange yeah. scenario. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Filled hallways? What? <laughs> <Right>. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the jungle out there but yeah i like to think that i wasn't really missing out too much that's what they found out you know mm -hmm. they tried it and found out that they weren't missing anything mm -hmm. that's awesome yeah so so when do substance get substances get involved so um my youngest son um i would say probably 
he may tell you younger, but I would say I knew that he had um, started drinking probably when he was around 15. Mm -hmm. um, his father and I don't drink. We've never used drugs. I mean, we don't smoke, you know. Right. Um, so he was drinking other places. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think uh, when he got a little bit older, then he started smoking pot. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and those two things, I guess, didn't alarm me. Uh, I mean, obviously, I didn't want him doing either one of them, but I, I didn't um, understand uh, the ramifications of those mm -hmm. later on. And then when he was in his early 20s, I think he might have been 20 or 21, he, um, he'd had a shoulder injury from playing basketball when he mm -hmm. was younger. And so he went in and had um, shoulder surgery. And, of course, with that comes uh, the opiates. Wow. And so um, what I found out is um, he went through his pain meds, and then he needed some more. And um, the doctor at the time gave him another prescription of them, just, you know, not suspecting anything. And, I mean, at that time he wasn't using that stuff. But um, that's where his initial addiction and entrance um, into uh, using opioids started. And um, and then it just escalated from there. For a long time, I didn't understand what was going on. Mm -hmm. um, we figured out, you know, uh, he was still, um, he had moved back home during the time of the surgery because he couldn't work or anything. And um, so we started seeing some things that were out of character for him. And... Um, if, can you kind of like... Well, like he would be, um, he was angry. Right. all the time and his mood swings you know mm -hmm. um, he would be really easygoing for a while and then he'd get really angry um, he wouldn't talk or he did he'd avoid us and um, he, he just became a, a different person mm -hmm. he um, he is a very um, tender-hearted individual and um, he had he would be that sometimes and but you would just never know you never right. knew who was going to walk through the door mm -hmm. you know and um i don't really know how um we got involved with serenity house but um a few years into it he went to serenity house and i was just thinking oh you know thank you lord this is awesome mm -hmm. and um what he and i don't mean this to be a negative thing but um, he had been using, um, he'd been drinking, smoking pot, and then using the pain pills. Mm -hmm. But when he went to Serenity House, he learned a lot of other things right. um, that um, he was not aware of. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's part of the process of recovery is some, you're in with other addicts. And they're sharing experiences. Mm -hmm. And so you may not know everything that's capable or possible out there. And right. um, so he actually learned, got better educated in using and doing things. Mm -hmm. um, he has actually been to treatment um, four times. Yeah. And um, so What's that like for you as a parent? I mean... He goes in, you probably get a little hopeful, Very like hopeful. this is going to be it, and yeah. then you kind of yeah. see that decline again, and then you're like sending back, just kind of that 
roller coaster. I'm I'm guessing. Obviously. Right. I'm not a parent. Right. I don't know, but right. So it what is. is that kind of experience like? So um, I thought it was kind of funny because the first time he went, his dad was just telling people, "Well, you know, he's struggling with this, but he's in there now, and he's going to be good." And I'm just thinking, "Wow, okay, you know, like this is this quick fix. Where they're going to mm-hmm. just fix him and send him home." Right. Um, he came home. He did good for a few months, and then. Um, he was back into it again, you know, and eventually he moved out of the house. And um, we're talking from 20 until he was um, 31 that mm-hmm. this went on. And, of course, it started when he was younger with the other, but the really bad stuff started when he was around 20. And um, so we've done four um, treatments or four uh uh, recovery programs mm-hmm. from that time and every time you have this hope that you know this is this is going to be it but there were some um, some sometimes um, he got himself into trouble with the law and so um, he went to jail for um, a couple weeks and of course family members try to be very helpful right. and so I wouldn't bail him out, but somebody else did. Mm-hmm. And um, because uh, it was a family situation, he went and lived with them instead of coming back home. Um, you know, the Lord just, I, I'm a really strong Christian. I believe mm-hmm. that God is in all of this, and that has been my hope through all of it. But um, God just worked it out to where he was given the choice that he can either stay in jail for three years or he could go to treatment. Mm -hmm. And so um, back then, this was all new to me. I had no clue. So I am desperately online looking for programs. And I gotta tell you, there are hundreds of thousands of programs out there. You know, um, I didn't know the people at Serenity House well enough to really ask them for any advice or anything. And so I basically just started calling programs outside of the state. I found one in Arizona and it was um, $25,000 a month. And um, our insurance would pay some of that, but they Mm -hmm. required you pay it up front. So we had to come up with $25,000 to send him out there. And we made that happen. I mean, this is our child. You will do anything for your child. And so we made that happen. He went out there. it was in Arizona, and um, he had a great counselor. She was wonderful. Um, he had been told somewhere along our path that he um, had ADHD, mm-hmm. so they put him on Adderall, which I don't know if you're familiar with Adderall. <laughs> yeah. But um, it's meth. I mm-hmm. mean, it's speed, you know. It's it's the kind of stuff that... It's certainly similar. Yes. Uh, I don't know if it's exactly the same no, thing. No, I'm not saying ex- no. because, obviously, meth is made out of a lot of different things. But Right. It's a, bit, but it's a heavy stimulant, for sure. what it is, um, he told me, he goes, Mom, this is, I, I don't need drugs. This is basically, you know, the Adderall is, is just like the speed. And so... Um, when he went down there, they said, well, we really don't allow people to come in on this, but we'll mm-hmm. taper him off of it. Right. And so they did, and um, he was down there for, he was in the program for four months, which was required by the court, so right. he finished it, you know, right to the, mm-hmm. and he left a few days after. What's that four months like for you? Are you guys talking at this All age? the time, you yeah, and so um, his counselor we had uh, at least once a week phone call with the counselor and um and then 
he would call me, you know, at other times when he could. We would correspond through letters. I went down there three or four times to see him. Mm -hmm. Um, He moved into um, a uh, house, a Mm -hmm. sober living house, and that lasted for about a month, and then he slowly ended back up where he started from. Mm -hmm. And so um, he called me. Uh, right before Christmas one year, and said, could he come home? And so, of course, we made that happen because mm-hmm. we wanted him home. Mm-hmm. We were, Is he still sober at this point? No, he no. is. He is yeah. He's trying, but mm-hmm. he is not. Mm-hmm. And so he came home, and um, I think he came and worked with some of the folks at Serenity House and, you know, did, did fine for a while. And um, he... Uh, eventually ended up back outside living in California and um and he lived in Washington and one of the things he was telling me in Washington is that he was able to grow pot and make a living off of that mm-hmm. you know and um he was very independent he was very angry um you know nobody grows up in a perfect home i didn't have the perfect home for my kids you know there were things mm-hmm. and and so i think kids have to grow up and um, kind of work through some of the things at home. Right. And um, and I think that's kind of what he was doing, but then this drug thing was in the middle of it. Right. And um, and I and some of these things, you know, I may have, have out of step, but just mm-hmm. things that come to mind. Um, when he came back, he stayed for a while, then he went back outside, and he called me one day, and he was just the things he was saying were just like, Seriously, I mean, I was scared to death what he was telling me, you know. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand that he was on something when he was telling me this stuff, right? And there's probably some anxiety about you you have some inclinations that he's back using again. You've seen, like you said earlier, like you don't know who you're going to get when you answer the phone, when he is using. And now, like, I think it's very, like, obvious but sometimes it needs to be said that like no parent wants to see their kid in a dangerous situation oh no it scares you to death and especially like it's a little different yeah i mean as a parent especially like i mean i'm assuming that like when they're in town you at least know like you're close and then if they need you you can be there you know what i mean like but when they're in washington or california and they're kind of living a dangerous life you're like that's got to create some even more anxiety because you you can't help them at that point no, and I would say that I got to the point where if the phone didn't ring, I was scared, and if the phone did ring, I was scared. Mm-hmm. And um, so it, there was so much anxiety with that. And um, he, uh, he, when he came back, he um, tried to, you know, like I said, work and get back into it and, and get his life, and he did okay for a while. But um, I think the longest that he was... Um, in recovery before this last time was about 11 months Mm -hmm. and um, during that time uh, he had he had come back from Arizona and he had finally kind of gotten you know ahead of things and then he um, had left and and then he came back again he kept coming back to Alaska Mm -hmm. which I don't think he really wanted to live here because um, he doesn't like the darkness or the cold but he just kept coming back you know Mm -hmm. And um, I think that uh, the last time before he went into treatment, um, he had tried Serenity House. I mean, 
The people at Serenity House are amazing people. And I just think that um, there was never anything that I could say or I could do that I could truly repay or thank them for what they have done for me in this journey that I was ill-prepared for. You know, and I mean, what parent is prepared for something oh, like that, though? You, you know what I mean? Not. Like, I, you're not. And I feel like it's one of those things, too, where you can even like the most proactive of parents can like imagine what that might be like. But that'd be even difficult to do because yeah. it's really probably even very, very difficult yeah. to even imagine your child yeah. would end up in a place that's honestly pretty destitute when it comes to yeah. being heavily in addiction. And even if you could, like how to prepare for that and do that. It seems pretty irrational, if not yeah. impossible, you know what I mean? Like mm. to actually be able to yeah. kind of wrap your mind around the things that are, would and could and do happen. That's right. Well, and, and my kids, I prayed for them all the time from the get go, you know, and, mm. and this just kept me on my knees even more because there was just times when, you know, if the phone doesn't ring, you think, their dad mm -hmm. if the phone does ring you don't know who it is that's calling you and what are they going to tell you and if it's them you know what's going on in their life mm -hmm. but um, I will say one thing about my son that I truly appreciate and that was he always kept in touch mm -hmm. um, I know some parents go months without hearing from their kids and it would probably the longest I went was a day and a half or two days and that would only be because his cell phone died right. and as soon as he got it back up he would text or call and say mom I know you're worried but I'm okay you know mm -hmm. and so I just always appreciated that because then I knew he was still alive right. but um, when during all of this time I um, found uh, Al-Anon mm -hmm. meetings and um, that really the Lord really used the Al-Anon meetings to help me because I am a great enabler, mm -hmm. you know, just great at that. Yeah. And so, you know. I feel like a lot of parents probably could be. Yes. You know what I mean? Because yeah. you just want, I think like, especially if you don't know what to do, right. I think your number one fear is obviously them dying. Like, oh, I, yeah. I, mean, that, I feel like yeah. that's probably, am I wrong there, I guess? Yeah. I don't no, know. That no, the, is, the that root is... of enabling is basically right. fear of loss. Yeah. Is that that not wanting to take that next step. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I, I think it's like a lot of parents could probably be pretty yeah. good at that. So, like, what's, you go to meetings, it's like, well, kind of what's that process like of realizing that, like, oh, Well, like you learn that you're an enabler, you learn you're codependent, mm -hmm. and you learn how unhealthy those things are. And I was going to Al-Anon meetings when he was in Arizona, and his counselor actually was the one that had re recommended him to me. And, um, and she was very kind and very gentle, but very honest with me about being a codependent and being an enabler. And um, so you go into the, to these meetings, and um, sometimes you know people, sometimes you don't. But everybody is there for the same reason. We need the support, and we need to work that program. Um, really, he was um, not an alcoholic as much as he was an addict. Mm -hmm. And there's no Naranon pro programs in this area. But I went online and ordered all of their um, uh books and pamphlets and all kinds of stuff. I did a lot of reading. I read a lot of stories that parents had written about their experience with their kids. Um, and it was really nice because it helped you to see you weren't the only one living this crazy life, this insanity, mm -hmm. 
um, there were other people, and um, some of them, their kids came out of it. Some of them, they lost their kids. But you could relate to what they were saying, you know. Um, and then with the Al-Anon meetings, everybody comes for a different reason. But but the group is not about your addict, and mm -hmm. it's not about the alcoholic. It's about you getting healthy. And um, I went through a divorce at the time when all of this was going on. Mm -hmm. And so it really, the Lord really used that program and the people that were in those meetings to help me. You know, in those meetings, um, it says your higher power. Mm -hmm. And everybody's higher power could be different. Well, for me, you know, God is my higher power. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I that whenever I said anything, I said I talked about the Lord and about God and and I honestly think that um I would not have um been able to make it through all that I did if it wasn't for the Al-Anon program. That really going and talking for an hour, hour and a half, you know, to people that, um, and, and then hearing what they were going through. Mm -hmm. There's times you're like, wow, well, I guess I don't have it as, you know, as bad, right. <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, but that support is priceless, and it definitely has made a difference in my life, and it helped me to start to get healthier to where um, I wasn't all consumed mm -hmm. because I was prior to that. That was everything. And I had an, I had another son, you know, and yeah. I was pouring all of this energy into one son and trying to make the other one think everything's good, you know, everything's mm -hmm. going okay. Well, he, he knew me way too well, right. you know. Yeah. And I remember him saying to me, you know, Mom, I know what's going on here, you know. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to tell people because you don't want them to think bad about the person struggling with addiction. Mm -hmm. You don't want them to look at them differently or to love them less or to think they're anything less because they're not. Mm -hmm. They are people just as valuable as the rest of us, but they're, they have a struggle that's going on in their life that is destroying their lives. I mean, we all have struggles, but their struggle is actually a struggle that is going possibly kill them, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. And so, so you protect the addict because you just don't want anyone to think badly about them from everybody. Right. And so you kind of live two lives. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I had my, my work life, and then I had this life. And I was really blessed because I worked with a couple people who um, I could go and say, this is going on right now, this is just crazy, you know. And mm -hmm. they would talk, talk to me. One of them was a, um, a psychologist, you know. Mm -hmm. And he would help me, and then I would call and talk to Dr. Sellers, you know, and she, she would help me. But um, it just, it got crazier and crazier. Right. I mean, it just, you know, and so it, if it hadn't been for the people that um, made themselves available to me, the counselors at the Serenity House, even though he wasn't in their program, mm -hmm. they, would, they would help me as a parent, you know, um, yeah, it's so interesting seeing the similarity between your story and Sandy's as well of the solution of kind of overcoming enabling versus supporting is finding ways to learn and increase your own knowledge and mm -hmm. kind of develop as yourself. Because even say, for instance, I mean, that your son never got out of addiction, 
you know, that it was, it was always a struggle. Like that could destroy you over time. The amount of anxiety that you lived with, I mean, he's texting you pretty much every day or calling you and that's there, that constant fear of, oh, is this time, is it even going to be him maybe? Like what mm -hmm. if it's the ambulance calling yeah. from his phone or something, trying to get in contact yeah. with someone. So just understanding that that, like you said, that's not an obvious solution. It's not the, the most apparent result, you know, that, mm -hmm. that people think of. Aaron was saying, you know, what, what parent has a manual on how to deal with your kid in addiction? Yeah. Literally no one. Yeah. But especially for the solution to be getting some knowledge for yourself to be able to help them, like, that is that is way beyond, like, what you would normally think of, you know, of, of trying to help someone else. Mm -hmm. So I kind of want to rewind a little bit, if we can, to this initial stage in which uh your son is struggling he he uh in his 20s he moved in with you guys because he had hurt his shoulder and he wasn't able to work uh i can kind of relate to the the storm scenario of that because i've been out of work for i think uh last year a couple weeks around christmas time and it was awful like it was just bad it was just especially like the time of the year and stuff but not having a job and not having that consistent uh, structure, especially when it sounds like you had a pretty structured upbringing for him. Like mm -hmm. things were used to mm -hmm. being structured and then to lose that structure of a job, maybe for the first time or, or you know, in, in a really drastic way where you're injured, like that is, that is a pretty low point. So during that low point, when did it kind of become, when do you think now with your new knowledge, it became from a supportive stance of, you know, he's injured, so obviously help is, is necessary. But then as, the, as time goes by, when do you think that kind of slips into enabling? Like it starts to become, you know, he, he isn't necessarily getting out on his own or I don't know if he pursued a job at that time or whatever, but uh, I'm just trying to... Un trying to see from your perspective where things started to change and become a little more toxic and a little less healthy. Well, I have to, I have to say, really, I was an enabler from the time my kids were little. Yeah. I did things for my kids that they should have been doing for themselves because I just wanted to help them. Yeah. You know, I love mm -hmm. them. I just want to help them. And I didn't understand. I was brought up complete opposite. Mm -hmm. And so I went overboard the other way right, right? right. Mm -hmm. and so um so really my kids i was probably unfair to them from the beginning because mm -hmm. i was doing things for them that they could do for themselves but i would say that um he he always had a job he always worked hard he mm -hmm. did really good he supported himself mm -hmm. and um he uh was in between jobs when he did the that's why he did the surgery this was a right. good time oh okay and so awesome. um and so as soon as he got healthy then he was able to get a job and you know get going again mm -hmm. but um he i would just say that um because that was my natural bent back there mm -hmm. to do that uh, i probably continued to do that all the way through and um the only time that i think i really started to see how toxic it was becoming was um how angry that he he was you know and i didn't really understand what all the anger was from i think he was just probably um upset with himself probably disappointed um and then you know the drugs to have their effect on you mm -hmm. and when you don't get them on a regular basis when you know you need a fix and you can't get it that makes you really anxious and angry and you know then once you get it then you kind of calm back down mm. but i think that um 
it just, you know, like I said, from the get-go, I was kind of that way. It was just a learned mm. behavior I had, and mm. so something that I had to unlearn. One of the words that they use in Al-Anon is detachment. Mm. And when I walked into a meeting, they told me I had to detach. And I thought, how do you detach from someone that you love right. with, I mean, that you would give your life for? How yeah. do you do that? You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's crazy. Mm-hmm. You literally but, brought them into this world. It's hard right, to be yeah. like. Right, <laughs> You know, and, but over time I understood detachment. You detach with love. And mm-hmm. so one thing I would tell my son is, I love you, and I love you so much I won't help you kill yourself. Wow. But I will always be here to help you when you're ready to mm. get healthy, mm-hmm. always. And, and, and I love you regardless if you're using or you're not using. You know you always are loved. And he was always allowed to come home, you know. Um, uh, if he was using, then he would have to leave. But if, if he was coming home or just come by, you know, mm-hmm. that um, I think what really turned the whole thing around for him was um, a few years ago, he had um, he had been out on his own, and he came over to my house, and he was high, and I had to say to him in the driveway, you can't come here anymore, and that went against everything that I had ever told him, but that was a healthy decision for me and for him. Yeah. And a healthy boundary. For yes. Sure if you're yes. Not. And mm-hmm. it's hard because this is your child, like I said, that you mm-hmm. would do anything for. And my oldest son was the one that helped me get to that point. And then he told his brother, and it was as hard for him as it was for me, yeah. that you can't come to mom's anymore and you can't come to mine. You, have, you, you can't do this anymore. We, we will help you. I will, he told his brother, I will take you right now to treatment if you want to go. You know, and and he wasn't ready. And so some other family members got involved, offered him a place to live. And um, a few weeks after they were doing that, they realized that wasn't a good choice. So then they called and told me that, you know, he wasn't going to be able to stay there anymore. So he um, called me. And one thing my son never wanted was to be homeless. That was one of the things that the Lord put in him that he just did not want to be. Mm. And um, so I had called up to the Adult and Teen Challenge in Wasilla. Mm-hmm. They had just opened in March, and I think this was like July. And um, I asked them about it. They said, yeah, that they had room. And, you know, I told them everything that was going on. and. You know, they they weren't surprised by my insanity, right? <laughs> They'd heard that story, I think, a few times. But um, anyway, so then he came to my house one day, and he said, um, I don't have any place to go. And I said, well, you can't stay here. And he goes, I, Mom, I need help. And I gave him the phone number, and he called them, and then they um, arranged for him to come up there. And so he went up there in July, and um, he, getting him there, I had been pretty level-headed, rational, and, you know, could balance my emotions. But I have to tell you, once this was on the schedule, he continued to use, and he was living at my home, and um, which I wasn't going to kick him out because I wanted to get him to treatment, right? right? right. So you yeah. have to you a have to weigh those there, things, yeah. mm-hmm. and so and he'll tell you it was the craziest thing because he even remembers it. 
But on the way to the airport, he had to go get his last fix, right? I'm waiting for him to get home because we've got to get to the airport. And he's running late, and I'm thinking he's going to miss the plane, and I am just about to lose it. So I get him in the car, and we're racing off, and I am just going off on him. And And he later said to me, wow, Mom. You were really, I've never seen you like that. And I said, all I could see was we were going to miss that plane and you weren't going to go in and the cycle was going to continue, mm-hmm. you know. And, um, and there, were times, there were times when he would come to my house. He didn't live at my house, but he would come to my house. He'd park in his car and um, I'd be so worried about him. I'd be at work and I'd be so afraid if I were dosing. I would leave work, go check on him, make sure he was breathing, you know. Mm-hmm. And then come back to work and go do that. I mean, that that was just like I had to do that. So all these scenarios are going back in my mind as we're racing to get to this airplane, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't want to live like this anymore. Yeah. Anyway, um, mm. he has now got over three years in recovery. Wow, awesome. And it was the Adult and Teen Challenge program. It's a year-long program. It's faith-based. Um, he uh, grew up in a home that loved the Lord. But that does, you know, God doesn't have grandchildren, and um, you have to come to Him on your own. And um, through that program, He rededicated His life to the Lord, mm. and um, that is what changed Him. You know, um, a lot of programs say relapse is evident, is is inevitable. It it's not, and I don't want parents to think that it is. Mm. Um, for my family and for my son, God was the answer to this. Um, I think we have a lot of people out there using drugs that um, are people who love the Lord, and it is just a battle, you know. It doesn't mean they're not good people. Mm-hmm. It means they have a battle going on for their lives. Yeah. And so um, I will forever be indebted for everybody that has helped me along that journey. Um, and I know, you know, I there was times when I would just tell the Lord. I had to come to the point where I had to say, okay, if you're going to take him, you're going to take him, and I know you're going to give me what I need to be able to handle that. Um, You know, he doesn't give us what we need beforehand. He gives it to us when we need it, and and I had to surrender that. I think that was the biggest thing for me is being able to surrender my child to the Lord and whatever he would allow into his life, you know, um, based on the choices my son was making. And I just, um, I never in my life thought he would make it at a daunting challenge. I gave him two weeks, yeah. you know, to go because he went up there high. So he that's, had to detox without anything. Yeah. That's interesting. So, like, what's the difference between, it's like you said, like, the first time he goes to treatment, you're like, oh, it's this quick fix and he's going to come back and he's going to be great. And now, like, he's going to do a year-long program and mom's like, I give him two weeks. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At this, I mean, it's not that like that's even irrational because it's like you've gone through this so many times. Yeah. At some point, you like, I think you stay hopeful. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. Oh, I think you stay hopeful, yes. but in the back of your mind, like you're a little less naive at this point. I don't even know if that's a good word, but a little more like just educated on the situation. I was just, just how potent and strong you are. Like, an yes. addiction really is. I think that's know? exactly right. I think that um, in the beginning. You're very naive, and you and you just think that this is an easy fix. Mm-hmm. You don't realize what it does to their brain. You don't realize what it does to their lives, um, and to your life, and to every family member's life. But um, he went up there, and I gave it two weeks, and um, and he, I got a phone call, and he had wanted to leave, 
And um, the gentleman on the phone, he said to me, I think if you don't give in, I think we have a chance. And so he put him back on the phone, and I said, no, 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 you know. And um, he ended up being disrespectful, and so they told him he had to leave for a day or for an evening, um, and he could come back the next day if he wanted to try again. So he called me because he had been kicked out. He had nowhere to go. And um, I said, well, you know, um, I don't know what, what you can do. You know, I don't know what you're going to do but I will be praying for you. And um, he was really angry with me because I wouldn't get him a hotel, I wouldn't do anything. Um, when I got off the phone with him, I called everybody I knew and I said, when he calls you, don't you give him, him anything. No. Yeah. Don't <laughs> help him at all. And um, it was really interesting because he had left the center and he went into town and within minutes he was offered drugs. Um, he, turned them, he turned them down and um, he called a friend that he'd known from meetings, um, and he actually called a girlfriend who had a friend that lived up there um, that went to meetings, and she um, called him, told him that she would come get him and take him to a meeting. Well, you know, it, God's in all of this. She couldn't make it, but she sent another guy. Mm -hmm. So a guy came and got him, took him to a meeting. He sat down in a chair next to a guy, who um, uh, is uh, like an intern in a program up there and said, hey, you can come home with us. We have a bed for you, and you can decide if you'd like to stay in our program if you want to go back to the Adult and Teen Challenge. Mm -hmm. And so he had a safe place to stay that night. And um, the next day he called me, and I said, well, I'm fine with whichever program you want to go into. Mm -hmm. I will support you. And um, I said, but I do think you should go back and make things right regardless mm -hmm. of what you do and so you know he's being the tough guy and he was going to go back and he was going to tell him this and tell him that and you know and <laughs> right, I said right, okay you know um okay and so he went back and of course I'm on pins and needles waiting for the phone call to tell me what's going to happen and he calls me back and he's very subdued and he goes I'm going to stay and um and he told me, Mom, in that time, I had talked so disrespectful to that man. But the next day when I went back, all I saw was the grace of God and the love of God. And I knew that's where I belonged. And he said, when I left there upset, I saw God in everything I did. From that person trying to sell me drugs to that person picking me up sitting me down to a man who would provide a place for me to live that night or sleep that night and food for me. He goes, and that's when it really, my eyes were open to what God was doing in my life. And from then on, I mean, it's hard to be in a year-long program. Mm -hmm. It's all men. They don't, it's not a uh, man mm -hmm. and woman center. They have a women's center, but they're separated. And um, it it was hard, you know, but... Um, he did it, and uh, he worked as an intern for them for about a, a little over a year, um, and he is back to work now, and um, really his calling is to just deci make disciples for Christ, and so wherever he works and the men he works with, you know, he is really trying to be a witness. He shares his story openly. He's given his testimony um, in different places, and 
Um, you know, while I don't, while this has been a very painful thing, um, I wouldn't trade it for anything because of the outcome mm -hmm. that my son is walking closely with the Lord. Mm -hmm. And um, that is priceless because that's all I ever really wanted for both my kids mm -hmm. is to have a relationship with God mm -hmm. because this world for me is um, temporary. This isn't our home. And I want to make sure that they're going to be with me in heaven someday, mm -hmm. you know. Sure. And so... Um, Really, that is what all of this has been about. I think there was a battle for my son's soul, and thank God he he won that battle. You know. So, did you ever have the opportunity to talk to your son about the steps that you kind of went through? I mean, I'm just really curious of kind of narrowing down the impact of enabling versus supporting. Like, really seeing why why does it turn it around so much because it seems like you know he's getting supported elsewhere technically you know because he did find a place to stay right. but that was totally different than the kind of i guess safety net more or less of knowing that oh well if things go really bad or i just want to do this then i can go here and that's a safe place uh did you ever discuss that with him like so when he um graduated up there they get to do a, um give like a I don't know, it's kind of like a testimony. Mm. And he um, said that when he entered their doors, he had no one. His family had had finally decided enough was enough. He said, I had done in all of the relationships I had that nobody was willing anymore to pick up those pieces. And that is why he stayed where he was, because he realized there was no place else to go mm -hmm. and there was mom wasn't going to pick up those those pieces and and mm -hmm. fix it anymore because i finally somewhere along that journey i understood me fixing all this stuff was helping my son to kill himself and mm -hmm. that's the complete opposite of why i'm doing this right mm -hmm. i mean i'm trying to help him because i love him so much yeah but i'm loving him to death Mm -hmm. And um, and so that, I think, is what why that changed, is because he got to that point. Um, and he'll be the first to tell you that he knows, um, you, you know, along the way he, I've had people tell me that work in that world that most um, addicts don't have the family support that he had mm -hmm. and a parent that stood by them like I stood by him. Um, in the first part it was unhealthy in the second part it got to be healthy but I was still his strongest supporter you know mm -hmm. and um, and he will tell you you know my mom did everything she possibly could yeah and and he's been good to tell me this isn't your fault this isn't dad's fault this is nobody's fault these were my choices and I had to you know he the reason a lot of addicts use are um, because they're hurting mm -hmm. and there's something that they haven't they it's too painful to work through so yeah. they numb themselves and so going through the program up there was a safe place it wasn't mom and dad mm -hmm. there it wasn't brothers there nothing he was working through the pains in his life the things that he had gone through that had kept him drinking to forget or kept mm -hmm. him numbing so yeah. he didn't have to feel and um, and that is what they need. They need a place that they can work through those hurts so they understand that um, 
the, that they can live through those things. Mm-hmm. But it's parents understanding you did not create this. You are none of us are the perfect parents. Nobody comes from a home that does everything right. Mm-hmm. And um, and the best thing we can do is to help our kids um, find find their way without us like running ahead and clearing all the obstacles out of the way you know Mm -hmm. making working hard for something is not a bad thing yeah you know it's like if you worked out for your child they wouldn't get any stronger right you could run every mile on the treadmill or whatever but it's kind of you have to deal with that struggle to become stronger and capable of dealing with the rest of life because sometimes life is really hard but I like what you said and I think that's really where we want to put the focus is you're not withdrawing from your child's life you're not being like, okay, you can't interact with me anymore because you're like this. But you're reinvesting all that energy you had into support. into Because he said, my mom was always the biggest supporter of my recovery. And that didn't change. That didn't change when you stopped enabling. Right. Because I, I think that could be overlooked and miss, you could miss a really key part of that of you want to let them know, I want you to succeed. But right. this is how you're going to succeed. Your back mm-hmm. is going to have to be against the wall. You know, right. you're going to have to look inside yourself and see those those struggles and mm-hmm. and have to deal with them. But if you, you know, if you never have to deal with them, then why would you? More or less, right. you know, if you always had no fear of of, of basically the traits, the toxic traits that everyone has, mm-hmm. that everyone deals with. Um, you know, if you don't learn to overcome those then, then, you know, path of least resistance, more or less. Right. And I think one of the hard, like, the most crucial and, like, one of the most difficult aspects of that, even just from, like, an interpersonal mm-hmm. way or interpersonal perspective, is that idea of detachment. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, I mean, in a way, it's like, as a parent, I'm sure there have been times, uh, well, I'm not sure, I'm guessing, <laughs> I guess, um, where you kind of do feel like you've created this a little bit. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, and, and not necessarily true at all, you know what I mean? So detaching yourself from like, okay, my child made some decisions. I didn't make those. I don't really even, like, at times I'm sure you feel like you influence those, good or bad, you know what I mean? Take that both sides of the coin. But that idea of detaching that, okay, my son's 21, he's his own person, he made these decisions, I don't have to carry this burden anymore. Like, I... I'm here for you. Don't get me wrong. Like I'm in here for your recovery, but I'm I can't carry this weight for you anymore. Like this just isn't this isn't mine, you know? And I think that's kind of one of those things too, like as a kid, especially, especially with people who like with addictive tendencies, where you're kinda you you use these things because you don't want to carry these burdens. You know what I mean? So you put them on other people, you put them on substances, you put them on all these things that are unhealthy. And then you kind of like have to, like you said, you're in, and imagine from his perspective too, you're like in your mom's driveway, she's always let you come in, stay the night if you need to, and all of a sudden like, here's this burden, boom, you're like, wow, you know, you know like, okay, so you have a couple options, like either you go and you keep the support that you have over here, but you got to do these things, or you go this way and you most likely are going to die. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or in reality, you know what I mean? Maybe I'd be today or tomorrow, but right. there's not a lot. Right. I don't know. There's there's an old saying, you know, like from a circle that I used to run with, I guess. But, like, 
you, there's not a ton, there's not a ton of 50 year old drug addicts and drug dealers mm -hmm. because most of them are dead and in jail. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. there's like the lot you don't see a lot mm -hmm. of them on the street. And so I mean, it is that's like one of those things like where you when you detach and you like kind of have to make them their own mm -hmm. person. Like I just feel like that's so hard for parents. Like it's part for I mean human beings that love people. Right. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like when you talk about being a part of somebody's life, right. you know what I mean? Well, there it's just as much a part yeah. of yours at that point. Oh, my gosh. Right? Well, you know, they say that your a parent is as happy as their least happy child. <laughs> and and I think that is very true. When mm -hmm. my kids are happy and life is going well for them, man, my heart is just light, right? Right. Um, and I have to tell you, it is just this is just such a crazy, crazy journey. You do, you first of all, when this all happens, you take responsibility. You think, what did I do wrong? What could I have done differently, you know? And um, and I think that's kind of a part, like we talked about, um, we have talked about before, is like there's a stigma that comes with addiction. I mean, whether it's getting better or, well, I believe it is getting better, but it's not gone. It's we're talking about it present. more now. Yeah. I mean, we're taking steps, I guess. Right. That's probably a decent way to put it. We're taking steps towards actually addressing it. Right. But I think one that we haven't taken a ton of steps towards, and I really may not even, like, a lot of people might even realize, you know, that's even just becoming kind of pretty new to me, is the stigma we put on parents mm -hmm. of people who suffer mm -hmm. with addiction. It is, like, I think society, you know, but right. people do kind of look at the parent and be like, well, what did you do wrong? You right. know what I mean? Like, and even as the more we address stigma, we're like, we are realizing that it comes from a lot of struggle and trauma. We're like, well, where did the trauma come from? And I think the first place people look is, Parents, which isn't right. always sometimes is sometimes right. isn't true right. take it for what it is but I think it's kind of this weird like double-edged coin you know where we're not necessarily like people are trying to place blame somewhere for things that have occurred want, and really there's nowhere want to be it to blamed make sense. placed yeah. and it doesn't make sense mm -hmm. and so there has to be an answer to why this kid did this right. you mm -hmm. know so so they look at the parents first. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, we are talking about it a lot more. I mean, even our president mm -hmm. has acknowledged, you know, we have this epidemic. Addicts are dying. Mm -hmm. And um, these are valuable people. Um, you know, t talk about such a difference. So when this all first started, I always worried, you know, I just didn't want him to end up in jail. I just did not want that. I thought that was horrible. And, and he did, but it was just short time, and, you know, he's out of it. So just always pray that that wouldn't happen. And then fast forward three or four years, and I'm praying, please let him get in jail. Let him be put in jail. And because I wanted to save his life, because I knew being out, he, he, he would have access to everything. Mm -hmm. and, and I thought, what kind of mom prays that kind of prayer, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but that is the reality of what a parent goes through with a kid struggling with addiction. You are on a roller coaster. You, none, of, none of this is familiar. Um, and you do go back and blame yourself. And that's why the Al-Anon meetings for me were great because it helped me to realize I was not to blame for this. You know, um, and, and, and my son was so good to always tell me that. Mm -hmm. and, and he always understood when I, he was so, so good about understanding when I would set boundaries. Right. Even though he didn't maybe like them, he was just so loving and kind even in spite of those, you know. Mm -hmm. but, um, but not everybody is, you know, and that makes it even, it makes it even harder on a parent 
when your child cuts you out of their life. And I'm so thankful mine never did that. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I was able to maintain that closeness with him throughout that whole thing. Um, And still today, we are very close, um, both of my boys. And um, and it's it's a work, you know. You have to work at those things, and we've talked about it. I I don't talk about all of that very often with him, but if something comes up, you know, we'll talk about it. But that's kind of in the past now, and he's mm-hmm. living a different life. And you know, um, I do now. I'm so grateful for what I've learned through all of this because now I have compassion Mm -hmm. for addicts and alcoholics and those that love them. I mean, Mm -hmm. I just have a heart. I I order a bunch of the Naranon books and stuff, and uh, Behavior Health Office knows that they can always have um, anybody who wants to talk can call me and I'll meet with parents and I'll talk with them. I give them the stuff that I, you know, the books and stuff that have helped me. Um, There's no one way that's the right way for any parent. One thing I've always told folks when I've met with them is, you know, to ask for advice, and I can't give advice. I can say, this is how I did it, but whatever you do, make sure the decision you make, you can live with the outcome. So don't let somebody tell you, don't let your addict in your house. Because you know what? If they died, when you did that because somebody else told you to, you'll never forgive yourself. It has to be that you felt that was the right thing. And don't let anybody else help you make those decisions. Mm-hmm. Because there's there's just none of us have that wisdom. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's important. No one's got the playbook. No. Yeah. And I wanted to make sure when I was making decisions, I always had people giving me advice. But I always, I always knew that I had to live with whatever happened to him, mm-hmm. and what could I live with, and that's how I based my decisions. Mm-hmm. So going back just a little bit, um, talking about what Aaron was saying with, uh, kind of like, uh, you know, no kid's childhood is perfect. Right. But I think uh, that as we, just societally kind of confirm mental health more and more you're starting to see people realize that hey maybe some of the trauma i have is from my past right. or maybe things happened you know back when i was growing up that really do affect me today but i think it's really important to understand that that shouldn't be used as a cop-out of like they made me into this it's definitely your independent decision of what kind of person you're going to be and you know overcoming those um, events that happened in your past will be challenging but I think a lot of people who are in addiction could very well get stuck in the mindset of my parent made me like this and now this is they they're making me do this you know they are the reason that I do this and that's just the way I am now because they ruined me you know but there there is help for everyone there is a a way I believe there is a resource that regardless of, of what your past was like that you can make your future into something that you want you're right. They're not stuck in addiction. I think they have to own it, like you're saying. They mm. can't have put it on somebody else. And it's not until they own it that there's hope for them turning something around. Mm-hmm. You know, if they can always blame, um, you know, their family or um, their boss or whoever, whatever circumstance, if they always blame that, they'll never get healthy. Mm. Because you have to own that. You have to take responsibility for your choices. Definitely. You know. And I, and 
And I think a part of that too is, I mean, like being able to find, because I think the hard part about that is the fact that like, not necessarily the fact, but the thought that like some of that stuff did like being able to work through that stuff is a learned skill. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, especially like if things aren't portrayed to you, like, you know, people, especially with people whose parents have addictive tendencies and personalities, you know, mm -hmm. things like that, you kind of learn these coping mechanisms that kind of propels. And I think like, cause we talked to a guy yesterday during a recovery story, he's like, you know, <clears throat> I still have some resentments towards this family member, or that family member, you know, but I'm working through that now. And so I think for some people, it just takes a little more time and a little, like, a little intervention, like, with a counselor or something. Mm -hmm. I think that's the biggest people, biggest thing for people who are struggling with public health, and that's, like, another stigma that we're starting to address, too, is that, like, it's okay, you know, to ask for help. Like, mm. even... Your psychologist, psychologist probably needs to see a psychologist. Mm -hmm. like, it right. just helps. It probably right. just helps to have somebody to talk yeah. to, and who knows what you're talking about, and knows you, you know, and can kind of, when needed, call you on your stuff, and when needed, like you know, support you in some things that are healthy, and like really know what healthy is, because I think it's like, uh, like how do you know. Like, how do you know what healthy is if you've never seen anything that's healthy? Right. Yeah, and so, like, I think we're kind of all coming around to this. Like, it's just as a species, I guess, you know. But I think that is, too. Like, sometimes all people really need from us as just a community is a little, like, okay. A little bit of understanding, you know, mm -hmm. that, like, okay, here's this resource. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, you see somebody that's in addiction. I don't think we drive down the street and be like, well, that's a junkie, you know, and like he did this, it's his mm -hmm. fault and to an extent, you know what I mean? Just a little mm -hmm. more compassion, you know, right. like with people, mm -hmm. you know, like some people haven't had all the opportunity to like to actually see a counselor. Right. And especially now, like with our um, service provider shortage that right. we are having, I think now more than ever is a good time to just kind of display a little bit of compassion to some mm -hmm. people. And, you know, it is, and it is tough drawing that line, you know what I mean? Where does compassion turn to enabling? You know, right. and when, like, right. when is there a time to draw some tough love? And I right. think there's, I think that's something that, like, that's a question you kind of got to, so you got to talk to with your higher power or with, mm -hmm. you know, whoever it is you go mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. for advice. And I'm not necessarily taking that wholeheartedly, but, mm -hmm. you know, taking what they have to say versus how you're feeling and kind of really think some things through, you know. Like, well, and I think that um, um, for parents, to be able to distinguish between enabling and being healthy and setting boundaries. Mm -hmm. um, for me, um, again, the Al-Anon programs helped me to understand the difference. They have a book, and I think there's 12 steps. I'm not mm -hmm. even sure. But, um, but, boy, I'll tell you what. It just made, it was like a light turned on for me when I started getting into that and understanding what um what I had been doing and and again not owning his problems or his choices because right. in the beginning I did you know <laughs> but um but then learning um the healthiest thing I can do for him is to to have those boundaries right. you know and he he even told me he noticed the change yeah. you know and that it was a good thing it was it was what he needed um, you know, because otherwise we would have stayed in that unhealthy cycle um, till who knows when, mm -hmm. you know. And so I think really for parents, get healthy, 
love your kids. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we have to love them from a distance. Right. You know, but I think it's always important to to let your kids know they are valued and they are loved. Mm-hmm. And um, they ha- they have an addiction. That doesn't make them a bad person. Mm-hmm. You know, and I understand that there's bad behaviors that come under mm-hmm. the influence of drugs and alcohol. But that the behavior is not the person. And to be able to separate those out, I think, is important. Mm-hmm. And and like you said, I mean, not everybody has had all the opportunities. Right. Not every, I mean, there are people that grow up and their parents are addicts mm-hmm. um, or their grandparents, you know. And um, so they, they, they don't know what normal looks like, right. you know. And so that's a good point. Yeah. And I, th- I think just as a community, being even, not like, I'm not saying everyone has to go out and like, get psychology degrees, you no. know what I mean? But, like, just kind of knowing that, like, there are some supports in our community and maybe just, like, oh, I've heard of, you know, the hospital has a behavioral health department and, like, you should look them up. You know what I mean? Just mm-hmm. a little something in the back pocket to mm-hmm. kind of be, like, if you do run it, like, you see one with a family member or a loved one, you know what I mean? To kind of just be, like, oh, this might help. You know what I mean? Just be kind of <clears throat> at least, like, on the surface, somewhat knowledgeable about some of the re- resources that are available in our community. Right, because you feel so isolated. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, between back when that started and where we're at now, there's a lot more resources. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's out in the open now, right. you know? And so it, there's so many resources on the Internet. There's, um, like, these podcasts. There's other things out there that um, can help parents to know you're not alone. It's not your fault, mm-hmm. and, you know, and, um, and and because they really can't do anything about the addict. Right. You really you you just gotta love them, and and pray that they'll come to a point where they're done with that, mm-hmm. you know, that they're ready to make a life change. But in the meantime, you have to take care of you, yeah. you know. Because mm-hmm. it is it. I mean, it is complete insanity. Mm-hmm. D- it, you know, doing that same thing over and over and over, <laughs> right. and expecting something different, right? Mm-hmm. That's what insanity is. So, um, and you look at yourself sometimes, and you just think, "How did I get here? How did, how did this happen to our family?" Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I think that's a good that's a good point, especially I mean, from your example too. Like, you don't drink. You, like, family didn't drink. Family didn't smoke. Family displayed pretty like when it comes to substances at least healthy behaviors right. restricted behaviors you know like i think that is a thing too where like addiction does not discriminate it doesn't it is not like it doesn't care <laughs> like, that's right this it's i mean it's like a lot of ways it, it's like it's like cancer in a lot of ways like it doesn't care how much money you have it doesn't no. care where you're from it doesn't care about a lot of things yeah. and like if it's if it's present in your genome like it might just find a way to express itself. Like, it's kind of wild. And there's, I mean, there's people who aren't addicted in the worst parts of society, and there's people who are addicted in the highest parts of society. So that's just, I mean, it's, even though we know that these are connected, like, we have objective evidence that adverse childhood experiences do, you know, it does encourage substance use. It doesn't mean that, um... Like, if you've had a really good life and you still struggle with addiction, you're not a bad person. Right. Like, just wherever you are at, like Aaron was saying. No discrimination. I found out um, a few years ago, and I didn't know this, but on his father's side of the family, um, 
his father's brother and two sisters were all three addicts. And um, I had no idea that that had run, that was in that family, that they had had that issue even before those, you know, those kids, even further Mm -hmm. back. And, you know, knowing that kind of stuff, um, it helps because you, you just, it just doesn't make any sense. And addiction, I don't think will ever make sense, you know, and it, and I don't think you can focus on that. You have to focus on what can we do about it and how can we help? Yeah. Um, and the best way a parent can help is by being healthy and setting healthy boundaries and to know it's okay to say no. If you need to say no, that does not make you a bad parent. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and but you can say no in a loving way. And there's a difference yeah. between love and service. That's right. Mm-hmm. You know, and that I almost thinking back to your story about him being in the driveway, being real upset. I mean, I don't know if he would do it personally, but I could see a situation where someone would be like, "Well, mom, you just don't love me." And it's mm-hmm. like, "No, no, 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 no." no. Yeah. I, I just can't do this for you. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's something that's honestly probably somewhat I don't have any empirical evidence, mm-hmm. but from just some things I've heard in my lifetime that's more common than we'd like to imagine you know what I mean oh, yeah. like especially oh, yes. with, like with mm-hmm. yeah. people in addiction like like you said like the behavior is not all it's one of those bad it's one of those not even really bad but it's one of those behaviors that comes with people in addiction is they're usually typically somewhat manipulative you know what I mean like it's just kind of it's one of the symptoms of the disease really you know like, and you have to, I mean eventually you're gonna have to go there if you want yeah. to continue like Definitely. you can't be telling the truth all the time and yeah. you know I mean good luck right. <laughs> wow I'm impressed yeah but you know and I think that's I think that's another thing too that like some parents could probably get trapped with you know what I mean it's like uh, yeah I I do but, but like, this, isn't, <laughs> yeah. this isn't how it's going to yeah. happen. You know? And I think that's a hard line to draw. Yeah, it mm-hmm. is. Yeah. You know, and one thing I'm really, I, I, I um, am very blessed is he never stole from us. Mm-hmm. He never did any of those kinds of behaviors. And he was very upfront and honest about what he was doing. I mean, he didn't hide it. You know, he didn't lie to me about that. Um, and I think probably for parents who have been, had their kids break in and steal things from them and do that, that, that would make you, um, that would harden you, I think, right. you know, because there's that trust and, and mm-hmm. you want to be able to have that. And when the addict does something like that, they obviously break that trust. And I think that, um, it's hard to, to get that back. And so I just think that, um, I can see how, um, some parents get to the point where they just, want them to just completely stay away you know my reason for him to stay away was because he was using and he couldn't be at my house doing that right. you know and um and it just it, like i said you you never know as a parent what um you might do or might not do um that they'll decide they're done you know they right. want to do something different mm-hmm. but it wasn't me it was yeah. that I drew a healthy boundary mm-hmm. and that was his response but it was not me mm-hmm. that made it made him make that choice mm-hmm. you know and knowing now that what happened is way different than where you were at right. back then you didn't know he could have you know ended oh, up yeah. cutting himself off from you could have died right. there's all these different scenarios yes. and now we know that it worked out but at right. that time you were just taking a step right. into the unknown Totally sure this was the right decision to make, yeah. but wow, that must have been extremely stressful. Yeah, it, it that I will say that was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life mm. was that right there, you know. And I still like w- with you guys, I get emotional mm-hmm. when I think about that because no parent 
wants to say that to their child and mm. and they may be 20 years old but let me tell you what that's still my child yeah you know yeah. and you want them to know your love is unconditional right. but this isn't love no this is not that's not what it's about you can exactly. still have the unconditional yes. love because the love hasn't gone down yes it's just what what you're willing to do right to keep them healthy it's learning what help. love really is mm, and you know the, people talk about tough love and i don't think you have to be mean but I do think that you have to be love them enough to make those hard choices. I think um, tough love's more tough on the parent. You know, it is. In a lot of ways, you know what I mean? Like, it's hard. Like, yeah. I just don't feel like a lot of parents like, really want to tell their kids no or, like, that you can't stay here. Yeah. Because like, I think... Who wants their kid to be homeless? Yeah, humans are smart. They know if they don't <laughs> give them a place to stay, like, they're probably not going to have very many places to stay. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so, right. like... Well, it's that balance, yeah. too. Because there's, you know, you have the the willing to enable willing to go all the way and then you have people like oh is that who you are well you're a piece of garbage right. and i never yeah, want yeah. to see you you know yeah. so it's definitely that there's those two extremes but yeah i can i can definitely see how both can be harmful in their own way mm -hmm. absolutely yeah yeah it is it's um it is a tough road for parents um i'm obviously very thankful for where he's at now mm -hmm. um but i have not forgotten that road and, and, and like I said, I'm, th I'm thankful because it's made me compassionate. And um, when, I see, when I see somebody somewhere, I always say a prayer if, if for them. That's somebody's son, mm -hmm. brother, husband, or that's somebody's daughter or mom. I mean, those are people that matter. Mm -hmm. And we need to remember that. We need to not judge them but pray for them, you know, um, because they're hurting. I don't know anybody who wakes up and says, I want to be an addict today, mm -hmm. you know? Right. I just don't think that's what happens. Mm -hmm. And that, that view of compassion, just for each person, I know, it, I feel like I've been desensitized to the, the random stranger, more or less. I mean, I, I feel like as a society, you watch all these spectacles and stuff of people being an idiot on YouTube or something. <laughs> and it, it's not that it... You know, it just kind of dehumanizes them. Like, they're kind of mm -hmm. entertainment or they're kind of the mm -hmm. background. But then you forget, like you said, that they're somebody's daughter, that they're somebody's, you know, brother or right. that we're all kind of connected. Right. And that, that really that, that compassion and wanting to help your fellow man mm -hmm. is what can make a community really tight-knit right. and, and really a extremely awesome place to live, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, but that's definitely something you have to overcome. Especially right. in Alaska, where uh, you know, people are usually pretty friendly to me, right. at least, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and uh, or they just ignore me because right. you know they're they're doing their own thing. Mm -hmm. But right. I think the more we can um, see the people in our community as people mm -hmm. and not just part mm -hmm. of the scenery, right? Exactly. The more Those other things that live and breathe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we all need each other. Mm -hmm. whether we admit it or not, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, and I think, and I think it's good that you guys are doing a podcast from the parents' perspective, because there's a lot of hurting parents out there that are beating themselves up, mm -hmm. and, um, and they, and they shouldn't, they shouldn't be, I know right. that they are, but they shouldn't be, because um, our, our kids make decisions, and we can't, we can um, help them make decisions up to a certain age, mm -hmm. and then you have to let them go and let mm -hmm. them make their own. And um, as much as you love them, you just can't own their choices. Absolutely. And you can learn all about that at the Al-Anon meetings. Um, 
I don't think we're allowed to like shout out exactly when they're at, but you can find them online. Right? Yeah, yeah. You can just Google Alan on. I'm pretty sure. Like, I Alan think so. That's how I found Kena. it. Yeah. yeah, and set yourself up with some meetings. Yeah. And you can also um, Google Naranon if you mm-hmm. want to. They have a lot of really good. Um, Paper, uh, pamphlets um, about, they have one about the addict in the family, um, they have books, they have just all kinds of resources out there, you know, and, um, and then you can always call the Behavior Health Office because these people really care. Mm-hmm. They are there not just for the addicts, they are there for the family too and will help you to find some resources. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's anybody listening that would like to reach out to the behavioral health department and either just, you know, seeking some other thoughts and perspectives or whatever it may be, getting set up with services for yourself or setting up services for whoever it may be, a loved one. Um, that number is 907-714-4521 um, if, if you need it. so Yeah, you're not alone. No. There's people out there that care and want to help help you get through this. Absolutely. Thank you very much. This was you and I for the keynote.